Hello, everyone. I am here today and I am speaking with Claude Needham. Uh, Claude is the developer of a, of a game called Dream Life. It's a, a role-playing game, which uh, I think you will find very fascinating as we get into it. He's also been a close associate uh, and student of a spiritual teacher named E.J. Gold, uh, who I find to be a very fascinating uh, and amazing individual. So today, I hope to have the chance to speak with Claude both about dream life and how it works and how it supports people's growth and development, which is, I believe, the, the idea, and also to speak about his uh, his own spiritual journey and his work with EJ and what he's discovered about, about what's important in this life. And so, uh, Claude, I'm really happy to be speaking with you today. Oh, thank you. Very, very good to be here. It's great to talk to you. Um, so maybe we'll start with a little background uh, because I'm sure most of my listeners uh, wouldn't necessarily be familiar with you. Uh, so maybe we can start by uh, you telling us a little bit about your spiritual journey, the journey that brought you to the place where you would create something like Dream Life uh, and uh, have, the, have the idea to use that game technology to support people's growth. Okay. Um, after graduating with a degree in molecular biophysics, basically quantum mechanics of uh, biological systems, I found myself in the interesting position of having all of that training and nowhere to take it. Um, I worked myself into a corner where the options for use of my particular talent turned out they were military industrial. <laughs> right. So I bid adieu mm -hmm. and went gold mining for some time. And it's actually partly a pun because the gold mining was an activity I did as part of the uh, Institute for the Development of Harmonious Human Being, uh, EJ's school in California. Okay. And um, that was in, gosh, 80, 1980. And I've been here the next 40 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've been a gamer my whole life, starting with uh, board games, as a, as a youngster, card games of all variety. And then when they evolved video games, one of the things that I did in the mid eighties was take a tour of the game cons in California on behalf of spiritual gaming, which is a concept that we were working with. And I, at that time, began working on a, another game called Bot Life that I intended to um, publish. That game has to do with observing your own life, mm -hmm. um, creating tables and uh, using those to do narrative. 
one of the early exercises that folks are given is to get some idea of who they are as a human on the planet. Where do they go? What do they do? What are their attitudes? What's your favorite color? All of the questions that kids ask each other in early 1950s uh, dating ritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that difficult to know when enough was enough, you know, quant stuff, quantity sufficient. And for new folks, I found the idea of bot life to be much more satisfying because it's a very clear and definite endpoint. When you have filled in all of your tables, then you're done. Mm. Then you can play the game to investigate further, but you have done a good deal of observation to fill in those tables. Mm-hmm. Playing the game bot life, one of the things that came out of that was dream life. Dream life was created by extracting coordinates, location, activity, encounter from your dreams. Not linked, just a big long table of places you have been in your dreams, a big long table of things you have done in your dreams, and a big long table of encounters that you've had in your dreams. Mm-hmm. And then the essence of dream life is to roll the dice, let coincidence control. If you're familiar with John Lilly's work and Echo, Earth Coincidence Control Office, let them have a hand in combining some coordinates for you. And then through a very specific process, a narrative process, you explore that. Mm. And that is the essence of dream life to give you the individual an opportunity to take a peek at what there is to look at. Right. Right. So, um, the idea you you said that you were uh, in the in the 80s you became involved with uh, EJ Gold's organization the name of which was what? Well, we call it the Institute. The Institute, okay. It's uh, I, I find it amusing myself because often you call mental hospitals institutes, right? And it's also short for Institute for the Development of the Harmonious Human Being. Fantastic. So. So in relationship to your involvement with the Institute, you traveled around uh, representing spiritual gaming. Yeah, through California, yes. Through California. And, and how many people have been involved in spiritual gaming? Uh, is, is, is this something that there's quite a bit of interest in, uh, people developing games for the purposes of spiritual growth? When, when we went on our little tour, we saw and spoke with pretty much all of the major game celebrities, uh, personalities, developers, and companies. Mm-hmm. They were very uh, open to discussion. They were intrigued by the combination of the word spiritual and gaming because it was new at the time. Right. No one was doing it under that label. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still 
precious few people doing it under that label. There's, I found at the time that there were a lot of people that were doing it, but not saying the words. They didn't have a context. They weren't working in a matrix where spiritual gaming was a label they would put on what they were doing. Mm. But they were, in fact, doing it. Um, the developer of the f one of the first really effective spiritual games, uh, Zelda, from the old 8-bit Nintendo. Yes, yes. He had, through coincidence or through design, a background that precipitated him developing a game that was beautifully uh, congruent with a spiritual um, adventure. Mm -hmm. so, and, so I yeah, just want to stop you there because Zelda is not, I mean, I know the game, but it's not a game I ever played. Uh, and I, it, I've never heard it described as a spiritual game. So I wonder if you would just, just uh, illuminate how you see Zelda as a spiritual game. It's, um, and to be clear, I'm talking about Zelda one, the very first. Okay. Uh, it was for the old 8-bit Nintendo. It, yes. I have not played any, well, I've played Zelda 2, which was a horrible disappointment. Zelda 3 was also a usable game, but not as good as Zelda 1. Mm -hmm. um, Zelda 1 was like a gymnasium where you can find activities things to do within the game and you're led through those in the game by making simple decisions about how you play the game. Mm -hmm. um, the moment that as a player, because you have the player and the character, the moment you decide as a player to not go for the biggest, the best, the most strong buff and uh, virile adventurer, but to go through the game in minimum mode, mm -hmm. you engage the process because there's things you have to do, uh, challenges that come up that present you with uh, spiritual lessons. I see. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I suppose there's a, in the industry, some folks consider spiritual gaming to be games that teach you spiritual ideas. Yes. There's um, a fairly nice game. It's oh, a couple thousand years old out of India, which teaches about reincarnation. Mm -hmm. A modified version of that in the modern times are snakes and ladders. Okay. Or Candyland, if you're, you have children around. That's teaching spiritual ideas. That's a kind of uh, Bible school mm -hmm. through games. When I refer to spiritual gaming, I'm talking more about games that help you develop those skills that will serve you well in spiritual context. Mm -hmm. Um the ability to see what is there rather than 
what you've been told is there or what you've been habituated to see as there. Interesting. Yes. Um, the ability to find and look for and find new solutions instead of relying on old solutions. Mm -hmm. Zero dogma. I mean, Zelda says nothing about anything spiritual. Right. right. It's all about a little boy running around killing monsters and opening dungeons to rescue the princess. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, there's a uh, TED Talk. I think it's a TED Talk you've probably seen. Uh, but it was a TED Talk given by a game designer. Uh, McGonagall? Yes, you, you yes. have seen. She's done a few, I think. Um, yeah, she's done uh, several. But the one that I saw that really intrigued me was how she was saying that the skills that people, that you know, young people, mainly, but not only, are learning in games, which is the ability to come together with varied skills uh, and work toward a, a goal which seems insurmountable and yet continue to, to work until you solve it is exactly the kinds of skills that we need today to meet the challenges of our world. And I thought that was very, very insightful and, and struck me as very true that there's a lot of valuable learning happening in, in, uh, in games. It, that are in, that's in very specific games that do that. Mm -hmm. um, yes, of course. Many of the games are uh, just smash and grab, King of the Hill, right. which is which is very different uh, than the ones that are being talked about in that TED talk. Right, exactly, and that's but what you mean uh, when you speak of Zelda. It, it, again, I didn't I didn't play so. But I'm I'm picking up from what you're saying is, you know, you might have a game where basically the strongest character with the biggest weaponry uh, is always going to be the one that wins, and it's teaching you to be strong. Versus Zelda, which you really start to engage with the game when you when you uh, essentially renounce those more, you know, what might be seen as the more obvious solutions, uh, and and start mm -hmm. to engage more minimally. And you discover a whole other avenues for success, which is a, a way of teaching spiritual values. Yes. And I, one of the games that we still use to this day is Diablo 2. Mm -hmm. The Diablo 2, it's a uh, adventure game, cooperative adventure. It can be played in other ways, but we play it as a cooperative adventure. And not only does it allow individuals with different backgrounds to come together, it requires for success that the assembly of characters in the game be different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to have complementary uh, skill sets. Yes. And... Yes. Um, it's very functional in that way. So it teaches cooperation as opposed to competition. And it teaches uh, the action of embracing diversity, mm -hmm. not just tolerating diversity, but actually embracing it for the value that it brings. Fantastic. I see. That's great. So it's, it's interesting to me, just the thought of gaming as a tool 
uh, as an educational tool, a speci specifically a spiritual educational tool, because the way that <clears throat> engage with games is very, uh, is very full. You know, when you're, when you're, I have played games, so uh, I know that when you're playing, you're fully immersed in the world of the game. Uh, and so I would imagine that it's a fantastic opportunity for absorbing values and ideas and skills because the, the, the immersion in the game world is so complete. It's, it's deeply emotional. It's, uh, it just grips your imagination and, and captures your uh, creativity. Uh, and I think that was part of, uh, did you say her name was McGonagall? Yeah. Uh, her, I think that was part of her point. She showed, I remember she showed pictures of faces of people in games and the intensity of focus and concentration uh, is so high, you know, I teach meditation. So sometimes I think if, if people engaged with their meditation with the intensity that gamers engage with games, they would probably see a lot more results from the, from the practice. Well, all of what you say is true. And in addition, you as a player entering into immersing yourself into a game where you're operating a character that has a, a life of its own. It have, has a context of its own, but you're stepping into it through the login process. Yes, and you're operating that character. That is so very similar to what's happening with us. Right, absolutely. In which there's a something or other called by different names that has logged in and is operating in this sim right right um hopefully in cooperation with the character yes exactly so so what you're saying is life what we know as human life operates along spiritually along very similar principles as any game where the the source of of life the source of awareness is occupying a, a body and 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 is is having an immersive experience in a life, but of course the you know the big the big spiritual reveal at the end of the mystical path is that that life was a temporary uh, abidance, and that that which was abiding in that life extends far beyond the the limits of that life. Yes, it, that's there's. Um... There's the life of the being, which is many trillions of years longer than the life of the uh, character, right. the body. Mm -hmm. um, however, given the nature of time, the even though there's a duration, a beginning and end to the character, uh, it still persists. Mm -hmm. Um, in the multi-dimensional time. So it's both short and very long at the right. same time. Right. Meaning right. that it's available to be accessed um, by being. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I recently recorded a podcast uh, with EJ, uh, EJ Gold. And one of the things he spoke about was, which I think is what you're touching upon, is that you're, 
past lives, which would be past characters that you have lived, uh, they continue to be available. Even though the, the temporal existence of that character may have ended, they aren't gone. Uh, if you have access to multidimensional reality, you also have access to the lives you've lived before. And therefore, as EJ was explaining to me, you can uh, access the skills that were developed in those other lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is fascinating, of course. He's, he's demonstrated that in many ways at various points. Mm -hmm. um, one of them that stands out as a clear indication is he was given a silver flute, uh, the Meinhardt flute, as a, uh, I think, Christmas present, but I'm not sure, birthday present. His birthday's close to the same time. Mm. He had not played the flute ever in this lifetime. He had one when he was younger, but it was stolen before he could even play it. Mm -hmm. So he pulled the flute out and then rec recorded a concert with very fine flute playing. <laughs> That's amazing getting the notes it wasn't the you know the screech screech sound that is typical of a new player mm -hmm. he was playing as a seasoned uh, veteran of the flute did you happen to be there at that concert yeah ah beautiful it was, it was quite amazing I, I would imagine that would be quite quite a powerful event well we did not know that he had not played before uh-huh we thought, oh, he's picked up the flute again, and I guess he still has his chops. Right. <laughs> Which in a sense is true, but the chops came from a previous life. Right, not from earlier in this lifetime, but from some That's right. previous life. Fascinating. Well, you know, I've had, I haven't, I have played uh, games in the past um, of various types. I was really into a game called Traveler. I don't know if you ever played. Uh, it was a a science fiction game where you, your character would be of one of the alien races and you travel all over the galaxy. Um, I played that quite a bit at one time with some friends. I always, I loved the, I loved the experience of stepping into a different character. Uh, and I, more recently I've had that experience doing uh, improv theater mm. workshops, you know, where and I've had the experience in one of those workshops of stepping into a character and having things spontaneously emerge from my mouth that didn't come from me. You know, they, they literally were pulled out by the scene and they were appropriate to the scene. Uh, and, and I was confidently saying things that I couldn't, wouldn't have any way of knowing. And I found it very fascinating. It was almost like being it was almost like having the scene pull words out of your mouth because the scene needed it uh, more than it was you producing words. But in a similar way, I think I also have many, I have had friends who were actors and improv actors. And uh, we've often talked about the, as you were just saying this, the, the analogous situation of an actor who steps into a role uh, for a certain amount of time and how that's 
a, a great analogy or metaphor for a human life, a given human life, where we step into a character during this life. Uh, and, and so there's, I think, a lot to learn from, from that kind of acting. But then I see, well, it's the same situation in gaming, where you're stepping into a character. Uh, and I know that uh, EJ uses Second Life, the virtual reality, uh, where mm -hmm. one has an avatar and can do all kinds of things in a virtual space. Uh, and I haven't gotten involved with that, but I, I have to say that I'm incredibly intrigued for exactly the same reason. Uh, I, think, I think any way that we can exercise the mechanics of taking on an identity is, is, a, is a great skill for that can aid you in trying to see through the, the limitations of, the, of our current identity in this life, because you understand how we do that. Well, if you um, consider for a moment, uh, image the body as a cup. Mm -hmm. And if that cup is filled with a water, something that can take the form of whatever container it's put in. That's one of the ways of looking at a liquid. Liquid being something that will flow and take on the shape of its container. Well, if the being has been in a particular shaped container too long, it forgets itself. Mm -hmm. It thinks of itself as the shape. Right. If you take that same being and expose it to different shaped containers, or as in dream life, remind it of different shaped containers, mm -hmm. then it has less identification as the shape. And at that point, it begins to cast about to answer the question, well, what the heck am I anyway? Absolutely. Right. So we, 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 because we're in a form for a long time, uh, we, we lose the memory of the, the, the inherently fluid state of our being that, uh, right. and, and we need to be reminded. So this is, this is a great uh, moment to return for a minute to dream life. So I read through the information uh, about the game that you sent, and I, I think I understand, you know, at least at the broadest strokes, the mechanics, which is that each, each character develops, as you said earlier, uh, a list of locations, uh, encounters, and activities, essentially. So, mm -hmm. so places you have visited in dreams, encounters you've had with other beings, I assume, and uh, activities, things that you've done in dreams. Well, I, um, the nature of encounter is broader than that. An mm. encounter is a kind of, of interaction. It's an encounter. Right. Um, for example, in, I recently added to my list of encounters an encounter with yellow plastic mustache and beard, mm. which is, uh, it was a, uh, like in a toy shop. Mm -hmm. Right, and it was a plastic beard and plastic mustache, 
particular shape. Mm. And the nature of coming upon it had the quality of an encounter. Yeah, so what is that quality that distinguishes an encounter versus it just happened to be there? Well, um, I suspect that you've glanced at the clock and seen that the time was 1111. Mm -hmm. That typically has the feel of an encounter. It's like, oh, you've bumped into something in that uh, interaction. Right. So that's, some... that has a different feel than, oh, there's a clock there and I'm using it to tell the time. Right. So there's a sort of an, an otherness to whatever you're encountering, as if you're meeting uh, something yeah. that's not just a thing. Well, and it's like um, the encounter, you meet somebody in the park. Mm-hmm. It's as if both parties are involved in the coming together. Yes, absolutely. Right. So it reminds me of uh, uh, Martin Buber's distinction between thou and it, where he, he said, we tend to relate to other things and even other people a lot of the time as just it's that have no sentience. But if you are more sensitive, you will realize that you are encountering vows. You are encountering others that have a, an, inner, an inner sentience like you do. And that isn't limited to just people. It's animals and also objects when you encounter sort of their, their inner being. So I'm, I'm interpreting how you're speaking about encounter something like those lines. Yeah. Uh, so you have uh, encounters, uh, and you have activities, actions, and locations. And, and you are actually creating a list from your actual remembered dreams? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so as the game goes on, because you, you, I know there's some place in the literature you say you can, you can have, a, have a few locations or actions or encounters, or you can have thousands. So I guess as, as you continue to play the game over time, those lists grow and grow and grow. Yes. Uh, And I just want to point out that you don't have to be certain that you're remembering it from a dream. uh You just have to think, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this from a dream. Right. I see. That, that, that qualifies because there's, there's no exam. This isn't a uh, department Mm -hmm. of motor vehicles. Right. And I, I know those moments where you remember something. I think I must've dreamed that because it doesn't feel like you actually remember it from this life, but you distinctly remember it from somewhere. Um, and so you were saying earlier, then, then you use dice, uh, and you, you, you mentioned John Lilly's work, which um, uh, I might need you to clarify that reference a little bit, but you were essentially saying you're adding some amount of chance in, into the equation here so that... Uh, yeah, that chance means that subtle, f- subtle factors can affect which location, which encounter, and which action gets uh, uh, chosen. And sometimes not so subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first times that we uh, did this in group, the dicer rolled. Um, and 
one of the individuals had the same numbers come up on two sequential back-to-back turns. Mm. They had the same dice roll for both turns. Now, the odds on that are pretty slim. Mm-hmm. It can happen. It Hearing the narrative that he was telling, it was obvious hearing the second narrative that there was more that needed to be explored. Right. And it's either true or not true that the God RNG, randomity, random number generators, what it stands for. Mm-hmm. It's either true that RNG stepped in and said, here, take another look, or it was just coincidence. Right. Right. I understand. And the end result was he had a second peek at something that was worthwhile taking a look at a second time. Right. And so when you have a turn in the game, you you r- somewhat randomly, or or maybe not, who knows, but a, th- a location, an encounter, and an activity will come up, and then you narrate, you create a narration around those three. Yes. Uh, we, we start with just... Um, a ritual recitation of what the coordinates are. Then the second step is setting the scene. Mm -hmm. And in improv, um, I've seen some improv uh, documentaries and often the um, instructor, instructor, mentor, or whoever's leading the group will set the scene. Yes. You know, you're sitting on a park bench, it's a sunny day, um, there's a breeze, and there's children at play. All right, go for it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's step two, is setting the scene. Often that involves a description of the location in such a way that it narrows it down. Instead of the hotel room being any and all hotel rooms, it becomes more specific. Mm-hmm. Is it a one-room bathroom in the suite, or is it bathroom at the hall? You just describe what's happening so that you and those that are listening can focus in on that location. And then in step three, it's... Simple. You just tell a story. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're doing the creating the narration, um, do you find that the narration starts to narrate itself? Do you find that the the story starts to unfold um, almost beyond your beyond your control? Yeah. In fact, I wouldn't. I don't say created narration. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of create a story, it's tell a story. Now, based on that instruction, you may be creating one, you may be telling one, you may be borrowing, you know, boldface from a movie you've seen. It doesn't matter. Uh, There's no spotlight on the source where this comes from. And the the sense of where the story comes from uh, changes 
as you work with this. Mm -hmm. And it becomes more a reportage. Rather than feeling like a creative writer and I'm making up these wonderful stories, it becomes more of a reporter. Right. Looking at what was there. And even though you don't recall ever having hotel room, penguin encounter in an activity of uh, doing a tap dance. Mm-hmm. You don't recall that ever happening in a dream. Right. But that there was a penguin that you saw at the zoo once. So that's how penguin ended up on your table. And you did have an activity of doing the tap dance in a dream in which you were on stage in elementary school. And you did have a dream in which the location was a motel room. Mm. But the dice rolls paired those together and you somehow had this narrative to tell. Was that creative or was it a recall of something you had lost access to? Mm. Um, Anyone that's worked with dreams and trying to remember them knows the feeling of awaking with a very vivid memory of a piece of the dream and then something happens and you lose connection you remember you had a dream and you remembered it was about oh what was it you can't recall Mm -hmm. well this narrative was it grasping one of those things and pulling it into your present or is this something that came elsewhere? Right, right, absolutely. That's fantastic. And um, and so as you play the game, because I'm I'm seeing all kinds of possibilities in my head. Uh, in other words, uh, I write fiction, especially recently. I've embarked on writing fiction, and and there are definitely times and the best times where I slip into something where I, the story's coming through me, but I wouldn't really say that I'm making it up. I'm, I'm almost, it's almost more accurate to say that I'm reading it as I'm writing it uh, and being told the story through my hands or through my typing. Uh, and, and what's fascinating to me about that is I have no idea where the story's coming from. You know, it could be coming from unconscious elements of my psyche. It could be coming from past lives it could be coming from other beings outside of me i have no idea i just know it's not coming from my conscious creative powers uh you know deliberate creation and uh, i'm very fascinated and i i'm sure you're aware of the science fiction author philip k dick who mm-hmm. toward the end of his life had a spiritual experience in which he realized that uh, the many many novels he had written over a long career uh, had been encoded with messages about deeper spiritual messages that he was not aware of when he was writing those novels. And then he went back and embarked upon a study of his own novels to extract this encoded uh, information. I was not aware of that. That's interesting. I I got so fascinated by that. and I think, uh, anyway, I don't, know how, how, I don't know if it did him much good. He seemed to get very paranoid uh, around it all. But I, I think, 
I can I can relate to the idea that through my writings things are are ending up in it that are not that were I was not conscious of when I wrote it. Uh, it was coming. Yeah, I, I use the word contrived. Mm -hmm. Contrived is more of what people refer to when they're talking about creativity. Mm. It's they contrived together a uh, a story. Yes. And true creativity, um, if you look at it in the old sense of the muse, mm -hmm. you know, if you're in a creative space, then you're open to the muse and it's not necessary to know where the story comes from. Right. In fact, that's one of the wonders of dream life mm -hmm. is that we have given ourselves permission to not feel that we're always in control and that we're always responsible for what happens in dreams. Right. right. So if you're reporting a narrative that comes from a dream, you don't have to um, hurt it in a direction that you need it to go. Right. You're allowed to let it go where it wishes. Beautiful. Yes. Uh, so I have a, a question because you, you have not yet published Dream Life. Uh, is that true? Well, yes and no. Mm -hmm. It's published as an ebook. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the short form is published as an ebook. And I will be very shortly publishing the um, slightly longer version. Okay. Uh, at one point I had a a 200 page version of it <laughs> and <laughs> you've seen both versions i believe i sent you both yes the, the short, short form yes and the slightly longer form yes which, which was still short um after looking at the 200 pages it was like please take out the scissors <laughs> 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 well, the the, the the slightly longer form, which is the one I'm holding in my hand, is about 28 pages. So uh, Yes. And it still has maybe much more information than is required, but that's the result of getting rid of another 100 and, uh, what is that, 72? 172 pages, yes. <laughs> so, so um, but I know that you've been experimenting with it for some time i don't know for how long but you've been working with oh for about two and a half years now and what are you finding in terms of what emerges out of this for people what are they discovering what capacities do they discover skills what what is it that emerges out of uh, extended play of dream life the um some of some of these discoveries i don't know are a result of extended play. They're just a result of play and they sure. could happen the very first time or after many times. The things I've noticed are connection. Mm -hmm. When someone in a dream life group is doing their narrative, you know, they're talking about tap dancing with a penguin in a hotel. Mm. That's kind of different. 
they're not talking about their politics. They're not talking about their grief. They're not talking about their gallbladder operation or any of the normal primate-driven chit-chat that we use for social glue. Right. It's a much more direct uh, visage with each other. Mm. We visit in a much more intimate fashion. So that kind of of connection mm -hmm. is definitely there, and it's very feelable when it's occurring. So it's connection with other players. With other players, mm -hmm. but also with that which they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one is being exposed to a narrative, and one is in it. The way that the listening happens is that you end up being in that narrative mm. and absorb it in a way that you might not otherwise. Also, something that I, hit me by surprise is that it is a periscope into others in ways that, as I said, were surprising. Mm. Um, I have a very vivid memory of this one individual talking about walking on the beach and picking up stones and putting them back down. That's about the sum total of their narrative. <laughs> In some respects, it was not very eventful. But the way they said it, the way that it transpired, is that I had a full view of them. Mm. It was like looking inside a giraffe's head and getting a taste of what giraffe is. Well, this was a taste of what that person was. Mm -hmm. And if I described what the taste was, it would have nothing to do with beaches and stones and walking. But through their narrative, that transmission occurred. Mm. The results of embracing that level of diversity, that's quite amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very opening. Well, it's, I guess what you're saying right now makes me think about the fact that uh, one of the ways to think about reality is that it's, it's essentially symbolic and and everything we encounter is uh, symbolizes and, and potentially gives us access to other dimensions, you know, dimensions mm -hmm. that are more hidden. And it, it strikes me that, that certain things uh, like storytelling uh, in, in, and in the form that you're speaking about it also in dream life, because it's more metaphorical from the start, because, you know, part of the challenge of, of spiritual growth for human beings today is that we live in such a, a belief system uh, that doesn't recognize the metaphorical nature of reality, that, that sees reality as a collection of facts, which means unquestionable entities that are what they appear to be, uh, where there have been times where people naturally saw things uh, more metaphorically and realized that there was more to be seen 
in something than just what was on the surface. So we have a very surface oriented culture. And there's something about the kind of narration you're talking about, because it's metaphorical to begin with, with penguins and motels, and, you know, they, it obviously isn't facts that might release you from some of the, the limitations of, of that way of seeing so that it's easier for them to become portals to uh, deeper insight and understanding and vision of reality. Well, um, read a book back 1970, what was it, 73, 72? Um, about uh, Valentine, the young kid that grew up on Mars. Mm -hmm. um, I've gone brain dead at the moment. I'm forgetting the title. Um, it was written as a satire originally to spoof on the hippie movements. Okay. One of the things that was uh, said in the book was that language is a, uh, a box that you cannot step outside of. If you don't have the language for a concept, you cannot have the concept. Mm. Now, I don't hold to that, but that brings into focus the fact that the narrative that you tell yourself, the narrative that you live, either limits your possibilities or it expands your possibilities. Exactly, yes. And while it's true that certain narratives are knowably false, they do place oneself in a form that allows you to move. Right. Um, for example, early on, I came to the realization, another way of saying is that is I embraced the narrative that dreams were a, another geography. Mm -hmm. They were not a unique um, created space. They were not the brain sorting out impressions from the day. I embraced the narrative that they were another geography. Right. With all of what that implies. Mm -hmm. Locations, mm -hmm. encounters, activities. Now, is that in fact true? It may or may not be. I tend to doubt that that simple statement captures the nature of the reality of dreams. Right. And I definitely don't believe that dreams are one thing. Just because we have a single word for a whole group of phenomena doesn't mean that it's limited to that. Yes, absolutely. But by embracing that notion that they were a geography, it changed my relationship to my dreams and what happened in my dreams and it changed how i was able to navigate in them and how i was able to explore so that simple half truth gave me access to movement that i would not have had otherwise 
Right, right. So playing around with one's own narrative, you know, gently nudging your narrative in a direction that works for you to give you access to, in this case, a broader footstep, mm -hmm. you know, footprint. Are there such a things as past lives? Right. Well, we have the phrase past life, and there is a phenomenon that one can point to with that phrase. And it doesn't matter at this moment whether how we describe that phenomena ends up being static and unchangeable. Right. I suspect it will change dramatically as there's more investigation of it. Yes. And, but and having along the phrase and the willingness to look into it opens doors. Absolutely. Uh, and along those lines, when you know things like past lives, lots of the things that someone like you or I would talk about are things that are culturally easy to question. Is there really such thing as a past life? You know, uh, but I like to point out to people that you know you could ask that about just about anything. Uh, so I could I could ask you, is there really such thing as matter? You know, I mean, what does matter even mean? Uh, especially you know, over the last hundred years, we've realized it's mostly empty space, and uh, it certainly doesn't mean what most people hold in their head as matter. Uh, and, and so I think we need to hold everything very metaphorically. Uh, and, and I think that's where something like dream life gives us a little advantage because it's in a sense, obviously metaphorical and maybe gives us, as you're saying, allows us to direct, to give us access to different kinds of experience and different kinds of insight, different kinds of realization. Uh, that's very exciting. So as we uh, come to a close for today, Claude, what I wanted to ask you is what are your plans for dream life? What would you like to see happen with the game? Oh, I'd love to see more groups uh, doing mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I know it can also be used in a solo version. Mm -hmm. uh, I've worked with it that way myself but the establishing of groups. And I would like to be involved enough to help keep it on course. Yes, sure. Um, I am not a big believer in doctrine. Right, right. And there's some simple rules in how one tells a narrative that will hopefully bring individuals into a better experience of the activity. And I would hope that those stay in the, uh, in the dream life context. Yeah. I could definitely imagine that with a game such as this, your expertise as the designer would uh, certainly help people engage optimally with the, with the structure of the game. Uh, because, as you said, it's not a lot of doctrine. Uh, it's fairly short instructions. And, <laughs> but still, 
I'm sure there are ways to engage with those instructions that, that optimize the experience. Uh, so that said, if there's anyone that wishes to form such a group, I'd be happy to speak with them and uh, try to ascertain that they understand what the, the key uh, rules are. Fantastic. There's only like three or four rules. Everything right. else is just do with thy wealth and go for it. Right. Well, what Bill and Ted say, party on, dudes. That's right. So what we'll do is we'll include some contact information for people with this audio. That way, if people are interested in playing the game, they can get in touch with you and find out how they can get started. Great. Well, thank you so much, Claude, for speaking today. Uh, I enjoyed it. Me too. I enjoyed it very, very much.